I need something to anchor to in that moment that's stronger than my fear of failing and that's stronger than the pain I'm experiencing from perhaps not performing up to my expectations or, as you said it, whether it's my direct or indirect actions that have potentially contributed to this outcome. I have to anchor to something that is stronger than that. So what can I do to step in? That is the voice of today's guest, Dr. Jason Brooks. And you are listening to The Stimulus Podcast. If you see patients for a living and find it's not always so easy doing the job, we get you and we've got your back. My name is Rob Orman. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician and now as a certified coach, I help physicians get unstuck, recalibrate their work-life balance, rediscover the joy in work. We produce the Stimulus Podcast to give you tools to find more fulfillment in your life and work and do it all with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. And on today's show, good friend, you know what? Great friend of the pod, Dr. Jason Brooks, PhD, the Yoda's Yoda, performance coach to athletes, military, police, business leaders, and of course, physicians. I have benefited from Jason's guidance much over the years. He's been a mentor to me and just an ocean of wisdom. Our topic for this episode is something that anyone in medicine is going to experience if they haven't already and will experience again if they already have, and that is the bad case or the bad outcome. Might be bad because of something we did or, you know, something had no control over, but just happened to be present for events. The question is how to recover. You know, in medicine, no matter how good you are or conscientious or anal retentive, no one is immune from a bad outcome. The outcome might be someone died because of our actions or inaction, or, you know, maybe it was a sutured wound that opened up the next day. I mean, there's clearly varying degrees of badness to outcome, but regardless, there can be a sense of failure, which can then be compounded the next time you run into that situation. And what about in the heat of the moment, recovering right then and there when you have to go see that next patient or deal with that next situation? All that and more in this conversation with Dr. Jason Brooks. Here we go. Let's say I'm going to start at a very high stress level situation, a bad airway. It's someone trying to intubate and we're trying and trying and trying. And you know what? You don't get it. You don't get their airway and the patient dies. The next time around, you have an intubation and you're kind of freaked out and then you really adjust your behavior to try to avoid those situations. But the thing is, is those situations are integral to the job description. So that's so much to unpack from there, but what's the subconscious dialogue that we're having after an event like that? I think it's quite natural that someone would be washed in a sea of guilt and shame and embarrassment and, you know, the obvious natural negative reactions to an event such as that, that one would experience. I also think the important thing to be mindful of is that under those conditions, our perceptions can be faulty at times. You know, just the sheer magnitude of what has happened. We become more susceptible to catastrophic types of thoughts or declarative types of thoughts. 
I suck at this. I should never have gotten this field and, and that kind of thing. And so I think what we're really looking for, what we're, we're striving to experience is just to feel safe and to feel okay. You know, this thing has come and, and rocked our world. No physician wakes up, obviously, coming in here wanting to make errors or have poor outcomes. And when it does, it rocks you to the core. It flies exactly in the face of every single thing that you work so hard to try and do each day, the intention that you bring to your work every single day. In striving to kind of feel safe, we're prone then as well to try and avoid those types of experiences again, if we will. And I think what's important is, again, to always check that inner dialogue to see there's what it's saying, and then there's what's implied by what that dialogue is saying. And I think more often than not, when we feel a reaction such as fear and we feel unsafe and our self-dialogue starts to morph in that direction, it's really trying to signal to you, hey, there's something here that we need to step into to get stronger. Now, that's the epitome of feeling safe is to get strong. And so I often encourage people when you're faced with those types of outcomes, you know, when the appropriate time arises, I mean, obviously not initially, there's going to be a lot of emotion to process first, but the kinds of questions that are important to consider is to really revisit your purpose. You know, what are you here for? I need something to anchor to in that moment that's stronger than my fear of failing and that's stronger than the pain I'm experiencing from perhaps not performing up to my expectations or, as you said it, whether it's my direct or indirect actions that have potentially contributed to this outcome, I have to anchor to something that is stronger than that. So what can I do to step in? So I think that on the general principle of, yeah, you know, you need to get back to your mission statement or you need to ask yourself, like, why am I actually doing this? But to actually do that after something horrible happens, it's easy to talk about this in the clear light of day. But when you're in the dark hole, Actually doing that might look like an inch, but it feels like an endless chasm. So how do you actually do that? It's what you do ahead of time. You know, we can all expect that you're going to be in a situation such as that. And so if there's something that I am aware of that I could be exposed to on any given day that could have the result of literally shaking me to the core in terms of questioning my abilities and whether I should be here and my confidence and trust and all of that. It stands to reason that there's value in sort of considering what that might be like ahead of time, really trying to trigger the emotions and importantly, coming up with a framework such that if and when that event does come across to me, you know, I have something to steer to, you know, some sort of process to navigate through those choppy waters. You know, what is the most important thing I can do in that moment right away? Do I have time to process it or someone I can turn to or do I need to have some sort of a cue or trigger to myself to allow myself to keep my attention here and now with a view to do some deeper processing later? And I think the more that we have a process such as that, that we begin to consider from time to time, you know, before you're heading to a shift or if you had an outcome that was oof, dicey, but fortunately went the right way, that's a great time to consider what that would have been like if it didn't go, you know, more optimally. And if heaven forbid, it was something that I might be responsible for. And it is easy to say for sure. And it's also pretty easy to suggest that, you know, you could put this together. What's not easy is enacting it in the moment, as you say. But what's the alternative? As difficult as it is, we are compelled. We are compelled to find some anchor point to shift ourselves back. It reminds me of this Jocko Willink video of good, where he's talking about when he was a commander in the SEALs. And there was somebody who always came up to him with a complaint like, this and that happened. And he'd say, good, you'll get more training. This and that happened. Good. You'll be better next time. Then he says, when something bad happens, get up, dust off, re-engage, 
and go on the attack. <laughs> That's great wisdom, but I think there's different paths that people take after a bad event. Most people feel badly. I think that's natural and I think that's good. Some will take the bull by the horns like Jocko and become an expert in the area where they had a failure. The obstacle has become the way for others. And actually, it could even be in the same person, depending on the event. That event will become an albatross that never leaves, or at least it takes a long time to get lighter. What is the voice that would speak to you that would help you shift your attention in that moment? I mean, if you can channel your inner Jocko and that works for you, terrific. Sometimes we need a voice that perhaps speaks to us with a little bit more compassion and a little bit less intensity, knowing what that voice is and what would be valuable to say to yourself. Because all we're looking to do in that moment, where again, where we still have to keep performing, is just to temporarily shift my attention away from the distraction of my own heightened emotions and, and negative thoughts about what just occurred and towards some semblance of being more present focused such that, you know, I have all of my capabilities available to the next patient or the next family that I have to see. The perspective on it that we bring to this, I think, is something also that I encourage people to consider ahead of time. When the challenges occur, when the bad outcomes are in front of us, what is the perspective going forward that we can at least strive to work towards? You know, I don't think we're ever going to forget these experiences, nor do I think one should. I've spoke to so many physicians who have found ways to utilize these very difficult outcomes and channel them into whether it be focus in a moment, whether it be ensuring that they don't become complacent, whether it's a humility check, you know, which makes them now double down in, in their preparation to make sure that they are staying current and developing their skills and what have you. There was a physician I had worked with for many years, and he shared a story about this very thing. You know, there was an obviously a critical incident, and I think he feels partly responsible for it. And so it's still, still the thing that keeps him up at night from time to time. But the way he's found a process to honor it is when he's in a moment, let's say that he's fatigued, he's towards the end of a shift, you know, he's been making tons of decisions, and, you know, he may not be as sharp cognitively as he would otherwise. If he ever gets in that state and has to make some important decision, he first steps back and he kind of remembers that experience, not to trigger fear, but to trigger arousal in a way that helps him. And he kind of steps back and it sort of summons his focus and reconnects him to why this next moment is so vital and why he has to be focused and has to be aware of the possibilities and make a sound decision. He's never going to forget that experience. For sure, it still weighs heavy on him, but he's found some way some way to honor it. And by virtue of that, I think some way to make space for it. It's part of his experience now. And I think that's the key is we learn to live with these experiences, not in fear of them or not in dread of them. They rear their head from time to time for sure. As something that matters this much to someone and someone who is so conscientious to do well and good for patients and families, of course it would. And yet if we don't find some way to live more effectively with it, it actually then creates the thing that we would be trying to avoid the most, which is the possibility of this happening again. Because if I'm stepping into the next moment wrecked with fear and guilt and frustration and anger and uncertain and all the rest, I mean, by virtue of that, that's a lot of extra distraction that could have the same sort of negative impact. So we do have to find some mechanism to process that experience, to draw the lessons, to forgive ourselves if that's something that would resonate with us. And to move forward with a sense of hope and acceptance. A colleague of mine in the U.S. has this great concept to describe these events. And he says, you know, it's this idea of remembering and forgiving. You must remember. There's important lessons there. 
And it would be silly to think in extreme instances that we would ever forget. I mean, what kind of human being could do that? I don't think that's very easy to do. So that's something we're not looking to do, obviously. We're trying to remember the experience, extract the lessons, but then forgive ourselves. Because on the other side of that forgiveness is the full presence and the trust and the confidence that we need going forward to ensure that the next person has our very best, or at least the very best that we're capable of giving. That reminds me of someone who has been doing this a long time and taught me a skill that I found so useful. It's that when you have a bad outcome, and it's a bad outcome that you were involved in the badness, that I could have been better. You, in your mind, have just signed a pact with that person. You're not actually doing it in real life, but it's in your mind. You sign a pact with that person and their family that the next time this happens, you will have more expertise and you will maybe have mastery or at least be on the path to it so that that is unlikely to happen again, that they have triggered that learning experience and they have shown you that gap in your knowledge or at least something that you needed to be better and you are signing that pact that you will be better. It's pretty heavy, but I'll tell you, it's a really powerful exercise that you are making a contract in your own mind with that person. And you know what? Maybe it happens again and maybe you mess it up again or whatever. But going through that process, I found really helps to drive the movement towards education, the movement towards understanding so that when the next time actually happens, the sensation is more, okay, I know that I'm feeling an adrenergic surge right now. Actually, like I'm thinking about situations I've been in like that. And my body is actually shaking right now. I'm just kind of like going back in there. But hey, I've been here. I've been through the training. I've been through the exercise to be better. I am better. And I've got this. Kind of like the doctor you were talking about before who has that exercise or that mantra that he goes through when he's in that situation. I found it as almost a way to forgive yourself that you're not perfect but here's the step you need to take. It's not that you take no steps because it's not like you just brush it off that you're some kind of you know, psychopath that you don't give a shit. It's that, hey, I'm going to do something about this. I'm sorry that it happened to you, but I will be better. There's two things that you need to do at the very least to go forward. Number one, you have an ethical obligation to learn from that experience, obviously, and to apply those lessons such that you can be better in a similar situation next time around. And, and ideally, you'd share whatever lessons that you've learned painfully with others such that perhaps they will be readier or it minimizes the possibility that they might experience a similar type of outcome. And then the second piece, as you said, is you must earn the right to forgive. The reason I say that is because I think our minds accept that. It's like you said, to just blindly accept and move forward. I think that's extremely challenging for most people to do. It helps to know that I've taken steps to earn the right to forgive myself. And here's how I encourage people to do it. And this is not my personal philosophy on it. This is through so many observations over the last decade with medical performers, specifically physicians. And it seems to me if there's a one framework, if you will, it's sort of a mixture of all their experiences. It's the first and most important thing, obviously. We, we cannot deny the emotional experience. To repress what we're experiencing in the aftermath, to me, is to only delay actual recovery and, and moving forward. As human beings, we're designed to feel first and then think. So to immediately engage yourself or someone else into the more deeper intellectual processing of the event 
I think is premature. I mean, allow yourself a period of time. Now, whether that period of time in real time is 37 seconds because you have to proceed to the next case, or more generally speaking, when that's done, if it takes a few days or weeks or years, or if it stays with you at some level for the rest of your career, at the very least, we're going to allow those emotions when they come up. We're not going to judge them. We're going to continue to process them to some point at which the intensity begins to drop. And once that intensity of emotion begins to drop, now we're in a much better position to consider the deeper intellectual processing, which is to say every experience has the potential to make us better or worse depending on what we do with it. So this is the opportunity then to step into that experience and say, look, What are the ways in which I could have been better? What are the ways in which I did perform to standard or at some level that I would be okay with? What do I need to do differently in the same situation next time? And who can help me? You know, is it a matter of of learning more knowledge or having more support? Or what is it that's going to allow me to step back in there? If I process the emotion, if I draw the lesson, if I share the lesson and I make a commitment to apply that lesson, what else can I do? The idea of suffering incessantly for the rest of my career, to me, is actually the opposite of serving the next patient or the next thousand patients to the fullest of your ability. There's a part of me that's being absorbed and consumed by the thoughts and the emotions surrounding that, by definition, means there's less of of me available in a moment. And if that lingering doubt or that lingering fear then also manifests as hesitancy or heightened emotion in a moment that makes it difficult to execute. Now we're not doing anybody any service. So ideally, we do want to work towards some degree of forgiveness and certainly process as much of that experience and extract as much of the learning that's available in that experience as we can. Well, you said a couple things in there that really resonate. You use an expression of, I think you said, don't repress the aftermath. Yeah. That in the beginning, after something like this happens, your reaction is all emotional. I mean, there's some intellect in there, but the emotion just distorts it. The intellect, the logic comes later. One of my medical school professors was talking about the difference between emotional problems and intellectual problems. And, you know, like you break up with someone or someone breaks up with you and you try to solve it with logic. No, you can't. You can't can't do that. (laughs) No. It makes me think about what happens right after this. A lot of people that I've talked to do the same thing, whether it's a hard case or a bad case, that you speak with someone else. You speak with a friend or a partner, and it's universally someone who does the same job. And it's often like the same person you call every time for this. And actually, it's the exact same field. It's not like you call a doctor who's a cardiothoracic surgeon when you have an emergency medicine problem or a nurse who works in the OR. It seems like it has to be the same. It has to be within that exact tribe. You know, debriefing is part of this, you know, where you kind of debrief in the formal way. But this particular thing seems so common, like one of the main emotional outlets after something like this is you talk to someone who has had your shared experience and say, you know, here's, it was a shit show. I can't believe it. And they're the person that you talk to seems to be the person who says, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you know, and they are kind of answering that emotion with emotion rather than, well, you know, your dose of succinylcholine was you know, clearly appropriate or clearly inappropriate. This, that. It's the person who is able to receive your emotional turmoil. Beautiful. I mean, as you said, if the first reaction is primarily emotional as it is, well, what is it that we would need ideally in that moment? It's not rationale or logic or reason. 
it's empathy. It's understanding. It's support. It's obviously inherent that the reason you'd call someone specifically in your area, and not only we can drill even further, not just someone in my area, but someone that I know and like and trust that's in my area that, you know, sees things similar to me that will understand what precisely I probably need in that moment, you know, more emotional support than rational breakdown of what happen and how I should have done it differently. That, that's not too helpful. I'm, I'm doing a great job of beating myself up already, and I'm in no position to consider the drawing of the lessons part. So knowing that you have that person to turn to in that moment, and I'll tell you what, Rob, it doesn't always mean you know having that person call them at the end of the night. It might be that between cases, like literally from going from curtain number one to the recess bay or whatever, maybe I just shoot that person, whomever that is for me, a quick text message with you know a little SOS symbol or something that the two of you have come to appreciate means I need to talk to you as soon as possible. The simple act of even doing that in the moment when it's everything is still intense at least signals to my mind the support I need is going to be available to me the first chance I get. My person is ready to rock to provide me that support and empathy I need. So maybe just maybe I can release from that temporarily and step back into the next case. It's funny you say that because I've gotten it wrong at times. I have some friends who will give you the emotional feedback and call them at that particular time. I also have friends who have tremendous content expertise in the areas where problems usually arise for us. And I have one friend who I called many years ago about a case. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. And his response was, oh God, you that up. Yep. <laughs> Let me just break down how you are so wrong. I'm like, oh yeah, this is not computing right now. I know I need to learn this. It's almost like you don't even have the neurotransmitters at that point to process it appropriately. You don't. I mean, in, I don't know if it's the neurotransmitters, but I mean, there's a saying, and I, for life of me, can't remember who coined this phrase, but all that emotional reactivity, the activation blocks access to the information. So, I mean, as long as we're in that heightened emotional state, any attempt from someone external to us to, again, bring a more cognitive approach to what <laughs> happened, it's just not even going to be met with any degree of receiving it. I mean, I'm just, I'm not there. What someone needs, most people, at least in my experience, in the immediate aftermath is some sort of emotional support and emotional priming to at least begin to create a teeny tiny bit of space to step into that next moment with as much of your full capacity back that you can muster. Do you think that after an event like this, you know, there's kind of this idea like, hey, bounce back, get back in the saddle. Do you think that you actually bounce back or is it more, and we talked about this a little bit more of what happens with other losses in life, like, you know, someone you're close to dies that you never really forget it, but the weight or the sting fades over time and you keep sailing you keep moving forward, but you know, it's not like, Hey, all right, here's my day. I'm bounced back. It's just, maybe it's incrementally better each time. Yeah. I mean, that term itself, I mean, it's sort of rooted in the idea of resilience, right? Bouncing back from adversity. And I've always had kind of a difficulty with that concept because especially in this case, if we experiencing something in our professional work that is very challenging, you know, a terrible outcome that we feel somewhat responsible for, and if we allow ourselves to step into that experience as we've been talking about it and scrape and, and claw to find some way to forgive ourselves and to move forward and make space for this thing in our life, this thing in our life that we cannot you know, undo, it's there. So we can resist it and, and feel horrible about it, which you know, we will at times. 
But in order to step back in and be at our best, we have to find some space for it. So if you do that and you earn the right to forgive and you work hard to develop a perspective on it that you can carry forward that enables you to step back into these moments and perform at your best, you don't bounce back. Bounce back would suggest I go back to my original place. You've elevated. I mean, there's the possibility, and that's what these adverse experiences can do for us if we approach them in the way we've been describing. They can actually take our performance and our confidence and our trust and everything that we're struggling with in the immediate afterwards. It can become something that propels us to a higher level of performance. You know, most people would probably take an experience like that. And if there was something technical that they could have or should have done better, I'm sure they're going to find ways to improve that part of their game, so to speak. So the idea of bouncing back in and of itself, by definition, I don't believe in. You either become better from it and for it, or it crushes you to the point where you, you regress, if that's a more apt description of it. You know, it just becomes the thing. You mentioned earlier the albatross that you just cannot shake. And so at that point, we're not even back to our original state of performance and being, if you will, because now we're somewhat compromised by this thing that we just can't let go of that may manifest itself in those performance moments when it's the last thing that we'd like to see surfacing for sure. And I think as well that the definition of bouncing back or resilience that I appreciate the most and I think that speaks to what we're talking about here is, to me, resilience is as much about adapting to our experiences, to the conditions that we perform in, and to the things that we are exposed to. And again, this is very easy for me to say, but I would challenge anybody who wants to <laughs> dispute it. The fact of the matter is, Rob, in your field, these types of experiences happen. No one is immune from them. And so if that is something that we may be exposed to in our life, we better have some process to figure out a way to adapt in the aftermath, to make space for it, to find some way to derive meaning from it and to move forward. So to me, resilience is more about taking what comes at us and figuring out the workaround, figuring out the way to process a similar experience such that you know we can continue delivering the highest degree of our potential that's available. We had Jamie Hope on the show talking about reframing and how to think about what you do. And you know, she was talking about going through her job, you know, just kind of going and you go and do your shift to take care of patients. This, that, and the other thing is like, all right, it was somewhat satisfying. Then she thought about it, like what you're talking about, what is your purpose and thought, all right, what is my purpose? You know, and I had actually never thought of it before until she went through this exercise is that she said, okay, I am a resuscitationist. I am a patient advocate. I'm a public health officer. Here are the things about my work that I do that are my purpose. And then when she goes to a shift or something like this happens, like, all right, I compare or I reflect whatever happens, whatever's going against that essentially mission statement. Here's what I do, who I am as part of this job. Giving it that kind of meaning builds instant armor, instant armor against these kinds of things. What we're looking for in those moments, what can I cling to that is stronger than my pain such that I can shift my attention back just temporarily? And in the long term, what can I anchor to that is stronger than the aftermath effect, you know, that the doubting and the worrying and the beating oneself up and the feeling guilt and shame and embarrassment, what is stronger than that? In those moments, in the aftermath, what is the predominant question that we are asking ourselves? It's why. Why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Why now? And we're totally leaving our mind without some satisfactory answer to that question because most of us just ask the question why, get 
even more frustrated and anxious and perhaps upset about what happened. And that's it. We don't actually provide any useful answer that our brain can cling to that goes, oh, okay, now there's a reason why enduring this type of awful, challenging, painful moment is worth it. Your mind needs to connect to that. That's the most important thing it needs. At the very least, if we can suggest that as awful as I feel now, I know, A, I will learn from this and grow from it. I know, B, I will find a way to make space for it. And I know, C, that in the greater context of everything that I will do in my career, even something as challenging and awful as this moment, there's purpose to it. There's reason enough to continue to step into this arena and give my best effort each and every single day. Just the knowledge of that in and of itself We take a deep exhale and go, okay, so then I just have to get busy with the processing of this experience. But I know deep down in the grand scheme of it, I will be able to re-engage because there's reason enough to do so. That's stronger than how this feels. Knowing that is what frees one to keep battling, to keep persevering and going forward. That existential awakening, it's awesome. But it takes time, right? It takes time. And let's say this just happened and you're walking through or advising on the acute management. I've got to shift the next day. Emotion's still high. You know, it's like that fire needs to just kind of come down on its own. What do I do my next shift while still feeling that doubt, that negative self-talk? Well, I mean, I'm a big believer in, in sharing it with your team. I mean, we can draw strength from the people around us for sure. Just letting them know. I mean, yeah, I just had a challenging experience yesterday and look out for me. You know, you might find that I'm not communicating as I normally do, or like I might be experiencing a bit of hesitation in something. And if my team is aware of what's happening underneath the surface, maybe just maybe they can be even better at helping uh, support me, helping reorient my attention, asking me further questions in a moment where I might, you know, be kind of wrestling with this or, or my attention's being drawn back to that experience from the day before or what have you. I think as well, having some sort of a mantra, something that you can say and do for yourself the morning of as you step back into the bubble, so to speak, as I'm driving to work, I'm reminding myself as to why and how I will step into this shift in spite of what is happening right underneath the surface in this given moment, how awful I feel and how wrapped up in the emotions that I'm, I still am. In spite of that, I'm talking to myself with a little bit of piss and vinegar, so to speak, and almost imploring myself that in spite of that, these patients, my team, this shift commands and deserves my full attention. And so if I can ignite a bit of emotion that is sort of equal and opposite to, let's say, shame or guilt or fear, now I'm talking about something that is about inspiration and duty and calling, let's say, and team. And I also think it's sort of related to, Robin, for those in your audience who are younger than you and I, maybe they don't know this reference, but the famous scene in Top Gun where you got Maverick, he's trying to get in the battle, But he's scared, you know, because he's been burned before and, you know, he lost his partner, Goose. And he has that moment where he disengages, you know, and he's talking to himself. He's searching. He's searching for some reason as to how and why something stronger than his fear that will mobilize him to literally re-engage. And he does two things that I think are important. Number one, he talks to Goose. (laughs) The act of doing that is now making this situation not about me. It's about something bigger and more important than me. So in that moment, it might be tough to summon the courage and the strength for myself. So I don't make it about myself. I make it about the patient in front of me. I make it about the team around me. I make it about the learners that need me at their best. I make it less about me. 
The second thing he did is in that tipping point moment where he decides to re-engage, I mean, what shifted was his state. There was an emotional surge of duty and inspiration that spoke stronger than the intense fear and anxiousness that he was experiencing. So he utilized emotion to shift his attention away from the negative reactions that he was sort of awash in and towards something that not only spiked him to a point to re-engage, but spiked him to a point to get his full focus back. That's something powerful we can utilize in a moment to make sure that when we're stepping in, we're in the best state to deliver our best. I want to talk about some of the specifics of recovering from that onslaught of emotion and you're still in the midst of it. You still have the job to do. And I want to want to hear what yours is, but I'm actually going to tell you mine. And it's just changed over time. We actually did this before a conference one time with breathing exercises. And I find breathing exercises that involve a breath hold to be super powerful. What I do in these situations, the first is I talk with the team so that I can just get it out there and realize like, we're all a team. We're all involved. Let's share this as a team. So that's number one. That's decompression. Number one. Number two is I'll do a breathing exercise. And we talked previously about combat breathing or triangle breathing. And some will do, you know, breathe in for four, hold for four, out for four, or for three, in in three, hold for three, out for three. What I've been doing recently is something I learned from Andrew Weil. Breathe in for four, quick breathe in, hold for seven, so a longer breath hold, and then out for eight, like a very slow, controlled exhalation. Do that for four or eight cycles, and that really takes the arousal state down. Once I'm there, I close my eyes and I say to myself what I was talking about before, and I visualize this, get up, dust off, re-engage, and get out there. So those three things, they can be done very quickly. You know, it's got to be a big event that I can take myself out to go through that process. But doing that, man, I actually, I feel more charged than I did earlier on in the shift. It's like, oh, I should do this more often. That's amazing, Rob. Have a process like that for yourself that you can trust in, that's battle tested and that you know is effective. That's huge because what that does is now I don't have to fear. What if that moment comes, you know, where I feel overmatched or I feel inadequate or, you know, I'm anxious and don't know how to, what happens if, well, (laughs) I execute this little framework that you just described. And so the knowing that I have the ability, if that moment comes to shift my attention back to where I need and want it to be, that in and of itself gives me peace of mind in the lead up. I don't have to fear the what if, because I know if X, then, you know, here's how I will proceed. Here's how I will engage. Can I ask you a question about the final piece there? When you say to yourself in the Jocko script, whose voice speaks to you? As you asked that, I hadn't even thought about it before. It's kind of an amalgam. I guess the voice I hear in my head of his voice, which is like this deep bass baritone voice and my voice, they're kind of both going in parallel because I know that I'm saying it to myself. So I kind of hear my own voice and I also hear his voice a little bit because I find that two minute video to be so powerful. I'm going to say both. And I think that's just a really important idea to expand on as an individual to say, well, what voice do I want to hear in that moment? It sort of reverts back to something I touched on earlier, which is to say, sometimes people want it to be their own voice. I think most often that's the case. Having said that, sometimes we might feel that when we're feeling inadequate or overmatched or what have you, our own voice might not be enough, ironically, to battle against our own inner voice that's interfering. It's kind of like a washout. 
And so maybe if I had some other voice as a symbol, whether you wanted to be Jocko or I don't care who your grandmother or whoever. She was a badass. <laughs> oh, she might be perfect in that case. Yeah. But the whole point is, is that A, what is the stimulus that will actually capture my attention away from the state of being distracted? And then secondly, if I utilize someone else, because it's tough for me to do it myself, it's because I am stepping outside of me. Now it's not me having to will myself to a better state of being and focus and attention. It's Jocko telling me to do it. It's my grandmother telling me to do it. And I'd hate to disappoint my grandmother, right? (laughs) And so it just provides a little bit more leverage, perhaps. And when you think about this, you could be asking yourself, well, what's the best way to go about it? And the best way is really to pick the strategy that works for you. I mean, you might need to, you know, prototype some to see, well, this works, this doesn't, but there's so much in here. You know, there's so much to this Yet I think it could be summed up that when you get knocked down, and we all do, we all will, don't keep it inside. Know that the emotional hit and the emotional recovery, those need to come first, followed by your intellectual investment, you might say, and using whatever happened to come out better in the end. And then in in the heat of the moment, how you re-engage during a shift or during work after a stressful event, it's a massive challenge. You know, you're still in the game. There's people depending on you. If you are a clinician, your team and your patients. So let your team know. They're probably feeling like they took a hit too. The hot offload, the immediate debrief can be really effective for things like this. And then ask yourself, you know, what's your anchor to get back in there? You know, not something that helps you brush it under the rug, but something that really empowers you right then, right in that moment. And, you know, maybe think about this before the next time you go into work or your next shift. How do you activate? How do you recalibrate? And that is it. You have an episode of stimulus under the belt, maybe even some new tools in your tool bag. Awesome. You are now part of the stimulus team and what most team members do is subscribe to the show so they don't have to use that precious brain power to remember to download it. And for complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. And if you want to reach out about one-on-one coaching, you can do it there as well. Just click the header that says coaching. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.